Our text today is Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. So if everyone could turn there with me. Listen to the word of God. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In our culture today, we have a common misconception. It's a myth. There's a myth that there is a war going on between truth on the one hand and love on the other. In our minds, we seem to think that if you have too much of one of these, let's say truth, then you must by necessity have backed away from or have have a deficiency in love. The culture at large has made a decision. They they believe that that love ultimately is what we need to shoot for, and they have cast away truth. You know, according to the culture, we have to get rid of any claims to truth, any call for a standard when it comes to morality so that we can embrace one another in loving acceptance. You know, this, this has effects in our society's laws, removing obstacles to sin in cases like abortion or divorce, creating laws requiring tolerance or even approval of the most deviant of behaviors. All this so that we can be a more loving society. And the decision to raise uh, love over truth, it shows itself in a myriad of ways. It shows up in our society's education system, where we redefine families uh, to include all manners of deviancy and sin. You know, while proclamations of holiness of God's laws are condemned as unloving and hateful, this myth has affected the liberal church. We see daily reports of people abandoning biblical doctrines in favor of women priests, gay ministers, the approval of blatant sin and blasphemy on the name of love. And unfortunately, even we in the evangelical church have bought the same lie, hook, line, and sinker. Now, it may not be so blatant for us. You know, we'll condemn homosexuality. We'll say, you know, that those who engage in such sin are not fit to be ministers in the gospel, ministers of the gospel in the church. But we still have this belief that truth and love are at odds. We believe that what we need to do is find some sort of balance, some sweet spot where truth and love are kept in balance. Doctrine is at best a necessity, a necessary evil that keeps us from loving like we ought. You've all heard the, the, ter- the uh, statement, doctrine divides, but love unites. 
maybe do we need to stop paying so much attention to doctrine so we can come back to a healthy balance? A balance where we can be more loving and accepting. We want people to feel loved and accepted just the way they are, right? Doctrine, standards of holiness, church discipline, all things that kill love if they're not reined in and controlled. See, this church is the assumption, the background we bring to the message today, to the the message to the Ephesians. We read of a church that's been throwing out false teachers left and right. They're not able to bear with those who are evil, but they've now declared by, been declared by Christ to have lost love. Oh, we understand that. We know exactly what's going on. They've become too rigid. They've started judging people so much that they forgot how to love them. What they need to do is move back to center, find a balance, stop getting caught up so much in doctrine, start loving people again. Is that how we've read this text? The reason we read it is because we have bought the lie. We've accepted the myth, church, there is no balance to be had between truth and love. As we look at our passage today, we'll see this myth for the falsehood that it is. The context of the passage speaks against this myth. The true relationship of truth and love opposes it. So we need, to, we need to look and we need to see what is it that Christ is calling his church to. For the, the rewards of the love he calls them to are great. But the devastation of missing the love that he calls his church to in the passage of today are unthinkable. Now before we jump into our text today to see what it is that Christ is calling his church to, we do need to gain some context. We've come to a new, a new section in Revelation the beginning of a section where Christ declares to the seven churches in Asia these, these individual messages. There's seven messages to the seven churches. These messages come just after the command of Christ to John to write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So John begins his record. He starts begins declaring to the churches those things that are. And even now giving warning and promise of those things that are to come. In writing the messages, John's going to use a standard format for each of these seven letters, making each of them a little different, a little specific to the individual church he directs it at. So we're going to look at the format, and we're going to look at these messages as a whole, as a whole to give us some insight so we can have context as we come to applying our text today. Um, so in order to do this, in order to look at these messages, I want to, I want to ask, come at them with three questions. The first one, what is said about the author of the messages? And number two, what is said about the audience of the messages? And number three, what is the purpose for which the messages are written? So number one, that, the first question, what is said about the author of these seven messages? To begin with, the author has already declared himself in Revelation chapter 1. When John turns to see the voice of the one speaking to him, he sees a vision of Christ as a son of man, that same son of man seen in Daniel chapter 7. So let's go back and read that. Read with me again in uh, Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This identification, as Christ, of, as this identification as, of Christ as the author and giver the, of the messages to the churches, John now repeats. At the beginning of each letter, he restates it, com, com, uh, complete with a particular characteristic from the passage we just read. So in the, in the introduction of each message, John is instructed to write the words of him who, and then follows this with a particular identification of Christ. And that particular identification is specific to the church. That's being addressed. So, for example, in our passage today, to the church in Ephesus, we read, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Why? So that he may show his right and his authority to remove their lampstand from its place. To the church in Smyrna, he's the first and the last who died and came to life. In order to substantiate his promise to them, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He's the one who came to life. He's the one who can give them life. So Christ shows, even in the introduction of these messages, that he, no matter the circumstances that his people face, that his church faces, he in his fullness, of it, the fullness of his majesty is precisely what his church, what his people need. And he is precisely what we need In the structure of these introductions, Christ tells us a little more about his role as author. And there's a recurring command to John, write the words of him. And this harkens back. It it goes back to an ancient practice. Ancient kings would write decrees. And we can see this throughout the Bible in 2 Chronicles. At the very end, you have the decree to rebuild the temple. And it says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord God throughout the Old Testament says the same thing of himself. Throughout the Bible it says, thus says the Lord. So here John is told to write, basically, thus says Christ. Christ declares himself to be king, the rightful king of kings. And he is giving a royal decree to his servants. He's our king and all authority has been given to him. And I want us to see something else. I want us to see what we learn about the author as it begins the body of each address. After the introduction in which Christ announces his sufficiency and then his authority as king, he says two blessed words. They're blessed words to us. Listen, I know. I know where you are. I know what you are going through. I know your trials, your temptations, your fears. Christ knows his people. He is the one who walks among the churches. It's the importance of seeing him walking among the lampstands. He knows. He knows our every struggle, every trial, every failure, and every success. Christ is sufficient for his people. He has authority. He is our king. And he knows his people. So that's what these messages as a whole say about who is speaking, who is the author. Let's look at our second question then. What is said about the audience of the messages? Well, they're churches, seven specific churches to be exact, specific churches that each receive a specific message. We see this in the opening line of each address to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Laodicea. To properly interpret these messages, we have to first acknowledge that these are written to specific churches, specific audiences. And each church has particular historical background with certain people, particular strengths, particular weaknesses, certain sins, certain graces. Now, we may wonder whether the specificity 
of what is written, the specificity of these churches, does that make it difficult for us to apply these to us today? Well, we really, really, we shouldn't have that question. You know, we're used to doing this. is common. In fact, if you look back, we do this all the time. Throughout the New Testament, we have all the epistles are written to specific people, specific churches, specific situations, and each of the authors addresses those specific things. But that doesn't mean they're not applicable to us. We just finished... We just finished an entire series on the book of Romans, something that was written to the Roman church with the the certain situation the Romans were in, and yet it was more more applicable to us. Uh, It was as applicable as anything to us, to to our situation where we are. So so even though these things are specific, they are still applicable to us. But I want you to to see the, the delight that we should see in seeing that these things are specific. Christ's words are specific because we don't have a God who speaks in some vague spiritual terms. There are religious tomes throughout the world of vague religious language. But when God, when Christ sends his words to his people, he speaks specifically. We have a God who sends a gospel to all peoples, yes, but through a specific man who came in a specific time to interact with specific people. He died a particular, specific death. And he was resurrected in a specific body, and his message of salvation is proclaimed through a specific people. We have thus have hope that Christ can be our specific Savior. So the audience of Christ's churches is composed of specific churches. But that's not all we learn about the audience. Let's look further down in each of these sections. But let's look specifically at our section today. um, Look in chapter 2, verse 7. This is a a refrain that's repeated verbatim each and every time in each message to each of the churches. In verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. Suddenly the audience is different, is transformed. It's not just the specific church here, not just the Ephesian church, but this is a message to the churches. You see, saints, though the messages were written to seven specific churches addressing their specific situations, they were intended to be more. Remember the significance of even the number seven. There are seven churches. Why? The seven is the number of completeness, of wholeness. This is written to the whole church. Christ is speaking in these seven addresses to his bride, his bride throughout the ages. He speaks to all of his churches, and church he speaks directly to us today. He who has an ear, let him hear what Christ is speaking even today. And the third thing we learn about the audience of these messages is their situation. We've been talking a lot about the importance of understanding the specific situations of the seven churches to whom Christ is speaking. And there are a lot of specifics. As Christ says, he knows. He knows the personal situations, the struggles, successes, failures of each church. But there's a universal situation to which I'm referring, one that is seen in the refrain of each address. For Christ ends each address by promising, by promises given to the one who conquers. To the one who conquers. To the one who conquers what? What is the situation Christ is calling his churches to be conquerors in? A situation shared by all of Christ's churches. Look back with me at chapter 1 and verse 9. John answers that question. It says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation 
and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John writes as one who is, in, who is sharing in the tribulation of God's people. He's even been imprisoned for his stand on the word of God, his witness to the word of God. Yet because of his hope in the kingdom of God, he endures patiently, waiting for the day of Christ's ultimate victory. This tribulation is a situation common to Christ's churches, and it is in the face of tribulation that Christ calls his people to be conquerors. Appropriately, the promise given to those who conquer is the same as that hoped for by John. <clears throat> the revealing of the victory of Christ's kingdom. This is precisely where Christ moves from the things that are and begins to reveal the things that will soon take place. The promises to those who conquer... The testing of this time of tribulation points to the end of Revelation, the victorious return of Christ and the presentation of his holy bride. Here we see such promises as, as eating of the tree of life, victory over the second death, and sharing in Christ's rule on his throne. Now we looked at what these messages to the churches say about their author and what they say about their audience. Let's remember our third question. What is said about the purpose for which these messages are written? <clears throat> So this, let's begin by looking at the body of each of the messages. Here we find, again, a few common elements. The first is that begun by, God's, by Christ's declaration that he knows. Remember, he knows each church's specific situation. And these situations do vary between churches. Some involve a rebuke for sin. <coughs> some involve a commendation for faithfulness. And some involve both a commendation and a rebuke. Depending on whether there's a commendation or a rebuke, Christ then issues a call, either a call to repentance or a call to endurance. And he includes specific threats for those who do not repent and specific promises for those who endure. So the purpose of Christ's words is such, it appear to be faithfulness in his people. I'm going to call this gospel faithfulness. Those who have not been faithful are called to repentance and to return to faith. While those who have been faithful are called to persevere in their faith. This is a call, a call to gospel faithfulness that we find repeated throughout not just these seven messages, but throughout the book of Revelation. In chapter 13, verse 10, in chapter 14, verse 2, John repeats the refrain, here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Endurance, perseverance, faithfulness. It is those who persevere in faith to whom Christ attaches the commendation, the one who conquers. God calls for gospel faithfulness in the midst of trial and tribulation. And to the one who is faithful, to the one who conquers, he promises all the blessings to be realized in Christ's return. To the Ephesians today, he promises to eat of the tree of life, the tree of life that was lost in the garden and will be returned in that last day. Christ, church, our call today as we read through the message to the church in Ephesians is that same call. Repent of your sins, persevere in tribulation, endure. For the one who endures will rejoice in that final day. So this brings us back to our text today and Christ's message to the church in Ephesus. And we come back to this question I introduced in the beginning. This question about the relationship of truth and love. Are truth and love opposing ideals? Are the extremes on a spectrum leaving us to find that sweet spot where we have just the right amount of each? Is Christ here calling his church to a balancing act? Ephesians, you've been too severe in your doctrine, too bold in your common condemnations. You need to be more accepting. 
more compassionate, more loving. That may be the way we think, but is that what Christ is really saying here? The problem inherent with that interpretation is that it directly contradicts what's written. Let's look a little more closely at the initial I know statement of Christ, the Ephesian church. Read with me in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You may have noticed, but um, we'll get that. As we, as we noted uh, before, the call to faithfulness in letters involves either a rebuke or a call to repentance. So, so Christ begins with a commendation and a call to endurance um, to the Ephesian church. And his commendation is this. What is it? <clears throat> it's, he first notes their works. And then he goes on to describe those works. And he, you, you remember that the book of Revelation has a lot of numbers that run throughout it. But one of them is that, that, that number that almost sets the, the meter. One, two, three. One, two, three. And so what, what he does when he describes the works is he sets up a, a set of, of three threes. One, two, three. One, two, three. And the, it's the rhythm of Revelation again. So what are the works? Your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So three sets of triplets. And within these triplets, John uses a pattern of repetition in the structure. The last three actually mirror the first three. So in verse 3, he says, I know you are enduring patiently. And this compares to patient endurance above. That one's easy to see. Following this, you'll see where he says you have not grown weary. The Greek word there is actually... A similar word to the one that's used for toil above, because that, that word, Greek word for toil could actually be wearying toil, toil that ought to make you weary. So we have this implication that though they've toiled under a burden that might lead to weariness, they haven't grown weary in their work. And then the, the, the third contrast is finally a contrast between the uses of the word to bear. So while the Ephesians cannot bear those who are evil, they are subsequently declared by Christ to be bearing up for his name's sake. So for the Ephesians, to stand under false teaching would be an unbearable burden, and they would rather suffer the consequences of standing firm on the name of Christ. So that there's three sets of three, and that they point to the crux of the matter, the work done, in the, the central set of three, the work that they have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. The work is in their insistence on right doctrine. They condemn false teachers. They hold firm to God's truth. The Ephesian church has been tested by heresy. Even as Paul had warned Timothy what happened. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to read in verse 3. So Paul's writing to Timothy some instructions. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So he's talking about what's going on with the Ephesians. Remain at Ephesus. So you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul warns the Ephesians himself when he addressed the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem. We see that in Acts 20. 
He's in, in verse 28, he says, speaking to the Ephesian elders directly, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Fierce wolves, false teachers. One of the ever-present dangers for the church spoken of throughout Scripture is the danger of false teachers, men and women who initially present themselves as children of God, yet soon expose themselves to be peddlers of a false gospel, a gospel which denies Christ, calling for the saints to abandon their allegiance to their Savior and follow the ways of the world. This was the battle in which the Ephesian church found itself, a battle which was not without cost. You see, church, holding to the true gospel is never without cost, without trial, without tribulation. I talked about how these messages are directed to the church in the midst of tribulation. The church in Ephesus was not just setting back, making doctrinal pronouncement, enjoying the benefits of deciding who's in and who's out. Turn with me. We'll see this. Turn with me to Acts 19. For those who may think this is all just an intellectual affair. Let's look and see what faithfulness would have cost the Ephesians. We're going to start in verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. The ancient city of Artemis, I mean, of Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis. It's one of the, it's actually one of the original seven wonders of the world. And this monument, around this monument, there existed a practice of paganism and idol worship that virtually defined the city. Tourism depended on the presence of the temple. An entire class of craftsmen depended on the selling of silver idols and other things to the people of Ephesus and to travelers from across the empire who would come there to worship. And it was in the midst of this sea of paganism that the gospel began to spread. And so radical was the change among those who abandoned Artemis for Christ that the whole city took notice. Those craftsmen took notice. They dragged believers through the city to likely beating and death. Now, in that setting, in that situation, how likely do you think it is in the midst of such persecution and threat that some people started to say, Maybe we don't have to be quite as strict on this whole idolatry thing. I know, I know, we don't worship idols. Maybe we should just be a little less vocal about it. Even uh, It might even be easier to get people to listen about Jesus if we just set the whole idol worship thing to the side. We can address that down the road when we get to discipleship or something. Or how about this likely scenario? I know the food they're eating is sacrificed to idols, but we know the idols aren't real. 
So it would hurt to join them in their feast. They're feasting to Artemis. We might even have a chance to be a little salt and light. And so don't tell me that things like that didn't happen. It happened then and it happens even today. The gospel is just as offensive in our day and it challenges a culture that wants to declare the vilest of sins to be just a matter of preference. Whether it be promiscuity, homosexuality, abortion, the culture at large demands that these things be accepted, and not just accepted, but approved of. And there are people today, even in the church, who falsely teach that sin is not sin. They encourage the people of God to be more accepting, to love people just the way they are. Because after all, people are going to be a lot more open to accepting Christ if we make sure not to turn them off with all this talk of sin. Church, the people who say such things are false teachers, and they are promoting a false gospel. A gospel that cannot save. The Ephesian church refused the comforts and lies of the false gospel of their day. Choosing rather to exalt Christ. In the face of persecution, they followed the instructions of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Christ commends the Ephesian church for their stand against a false gospel. They're suffering for his name. He says, I know, I know you are impatiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake. Church, if we take a stand for Christ, if we take a stand for his gospel, we will face the same opposition from our culture today. The opposition is already there. Even in our land, one of the freest lands in the history of the world, we are rapidly moving toward a time when the people of God will lose jobs, money, family, freedom, perhaps someday even their lives. For the naming of sin as sin, unrighteousness as unrighteousness, and declaring the gospel of a God who says he is the only way. Church, will we be faithful? Are we holding firm now? Will we hold firm then? Christ is calling the Ephesians church, Christ is calling us to remain faithful in the midst of tribulation. So that is the commendation. Christ commends the the Ephesians for their faithfulness. But he doesn't end there. Remember that these messages to the churches sometimes involve a call for faithfulness, sometimes a call for repentance, and sometimes both. Here Christ moves on from his initial call to continue in their faithful endurance for his name's sake to raise a charge against the Ephesian church that is severe. So severe that he threatens to remove their lampstand from its place. And we'll talk a little bit more about what, how important that is later. But for now, I want to ask the question, what is the accusation that Christ brings against his apparently faithful church? He says, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. What is Christ referring to here? Some translations render it as, you have left your first love. One possible interpretation is one that was put forward by Spurgeon in his sermon on the same text. And he speaks of first love being that love and devotion to God that results from a Christian's first encounter with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That man, when he first knows relief from his sins and the misery of his fallen state, is so grateful to his service to God, is so grateful that his service to God is marked by newborn zeal 
He delights in God's worship. He delights in honoring the Lord's day. He anticipates the reading of the scriptures, the preaching of God's word. He delights in speaking about the Lord who saved him. And according to this interpretation, the Ephesian believers have held firm in their condemnation of sin and heresy, yet they've wearied in their service and devotion to the one to whom they owe their very lives. They've grown cold toward their Savior, and he calls them to repent. And such sin would definitely merit what, what Christ brings against his church, or at least a charge that is that severe. Well, there's a second interpretation I want to look at that's put forward by Beale and others. And I want to look a little more closely at this. And to, to understand this second interpretation, I want us to go back and understand the context of our passage. And then we're going to look at the specific judgment Christ threatens to bring down on them. So remember that the context of these messages to the churches is tribulation. Christ calls on his people to endure this time of trial and testing, that they might enjoy the blessings of the kingdom that will soon be here. He calls on them to be conquerors. We've seen how this plays out for the Ephesian church. Their stand for the truth of God's word and the holiness of his name has brought them under persecution. The result being that Christ commends them for enduring patiently, bearing up for his name's sake and not growing weary. So context being tribulation. Now let's look at the judgment that Christ threatens to bring. Um, read with me in, in Revelation 2 and we'll start in verse 4 this time. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There it is. Christ threatens to remove their lampstand from its place. We've talked in previous weeks about the function of the lampstand in the temple. It's an instrument of worship. There's another picture he involved here that we see most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. We actually read it this morning. In Matthew 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The function of a lampstand is the lifting up and shining forth of light. What Christ says here is that unless the Ephesian church returns to the works they did at first, unless they resume the business of shining forth the light of Christ, he will remove them just as a lump of salt that has lost its taste is worthless and will be thrown out in the street. So let's put these two things together, the context of persecution and the picture of the church as a lampstand. And to do this, I want you to turn with me back into to Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 24 and I want you to please go there so you can see this. This is what is called uh, commonly the Olivet Discourse because Christ is speaking on the Mount of Olives. And he speaks privately and directly to his disciples about the end times, those things that will soon take place. These same things we're talking about in Revelation. In fact, much of the verbiage in chapter 24 of Matthew is verbiage we see throughout the book of Revelation. We're going to start reading in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated for all nations by, by all nations for my name's sake. 
So there's that the tribulation we read about. Even the Ephesian church was enduring because of their stand against false teachers. And then many, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. There's the false prophets. But keep reading. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There it is. The Ephesians may have done well in their battle with the false apostles, but here it is, the very condemnation that Christ brings against them. Their love has grown cold. Keep reading. And you'll see how this comes together. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. There. We see the concern of Christ in Matthew. It's the same concern that Christ has in Revelation 2. The concern of Christ is the proclamation of the gospel of his kingdom. And it is in the proclamation of that very gospel where the Ephesians church has grown so cold. The context fits. The Ephesian church has stood firm on the truth of God's word, holding his name to be holy against the false apostles of their day. They have brought upon themselves tribulation and persecution and refused to relent. And yet, and yet... Because of the lawlessness of the day, because of the sin of wicked men, they have withheld unto themselves the only light that this world will ever know. They have silenced their lips and ceased to proclaim the message of repentance and faith that the world needs to hear. We started to read earlier a text that the Ephesians would have done well to read further in. In 1 Peter 3, we read the command to hold the name of Christ as holy, but we're going to keep reading this time. Starting again in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. But what follows immediately after? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. The proclamation of the gospel is truly the primary work of the Christian church. And it ought to be their first love. Their primary devotion. Tell me, Christian, you who know Christ, who have been washed clean by his blood, who have been filled with his Holy Spirit, adopted into the family of God and anxiously await your inheritance with Christ, tell me, Christian, how can you refuse to share with your neighbor the only thing that you value above all things in this world? How can you refuse to share with him the greatest treasure you have ever known? There are many reasons for such silence. Embarrassment, uncertainty, laziness. I think one of the most common and the most pertinent to our text today is fear. Fear of how others will respond when you speak such an offensive thing as the death of Christ for sin. The Ephesians were probably tired of the relentless trouble and persecution that had come their way. Did they finally say enough? This world deserves what it will get. Why speak of Christ when all we get in return is reviling and hatred? Their love had grown cold. The threat to the church in Ephesus is not an idle one. Christ says, I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When we speak of the universal church, the bride of Christ, the complete church throughout the years, Christ has promised to perfect her and she will be victorious. She will come down from heaven in beauty and splendor. But we speak today of a single congregation, a temporal and local representation of that great congregation. And for the local congregation of the Ephesians, 
And for our local congregation here at GBC, the word spoken is clear. If we abandon the proclamation of the gospel, if we close our lips to our neighbors about the work of our King and Savior, then Christ will remove our lampstand unless we repent. The truth of this is undeniable. Think of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Which of them still stands today a faithful witness to Christ? Think of other bulwarks of the faith. What about the churches of the Netherlands where the the flames of the Reformation were kindled and burned bright and today it is one of the most secular and God-hating societies in this world. Think Think of Wales, of Scotland. England, America, the landscape of the centuries is decorated with the empty walls of great churches long dead. Churches that were once alive and vibrant, standing for Christ, honoring his name, and yet they have been removed. Will we end up the same if we abandon our first love? If we grow cold in what ought to be our primary work, if we abandon the proclamation of the gospel of grace, we too may be removed. So what hope is there? What's the hope for the Ephesian church? What's the hope for us today not to be removed, to be faithful, to enjoy the return to the tree of life that was lost in the garden and will one day be restored? The hope Christ gives the Ephesian church is the same hope he gives all his churches, the same hope he gives us today. He calls on them to repent, but look, he offers a refrain. It's the same refrain given to the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus repeated that same refrain throughout his earthly ministry. At the end of each parable, he would repeat it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a gospel refrain. Christ calls for those who have been given ears to hear, eyes to see by the working of the Spirit. Church, without the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, then we will fail. We will fail in our attempts to hold firm on the faith once proclaimed. Falling to false teachers and deception, we will fail in our proclamation to a dying world that needs Jesus Christ. The only way to gospel faithfulness is to rest on and turn to the one who is always faithful. Christ honored his father's name even unto death. Christ is the true and faithful witness. And in him... In Him alone will we find ourselves to be faithful.